Well, good morning. How are you this morning? Good. I trust that you are well. Uh, we have quite a bit to cover this morning in our, in our text, and so I just want to get to it. Uh, today is our final Sunday in the book of Jonah. And our journey through this brief eight-week series has been both encouraging and challenging because the story of, of Jonah provides a window into God's heart and a much-needed look into our own. But what is the point of the book of Jonah? I want you to, I want you to hear this with me. What is the intended outcome? Why do we have this account? What are we to do with Jonah's story? Is it informational only? Or does God intend application also? And if, if application, what is the application? I'm curious to your thoughts. Why do we have the book of Jonah? What is the point and intended outcome? And what is the application of the book of Jonah? Shout them out there. Setting our will in God's direction. Nice. What else? God's mercy and grace, just again, savoring and celebrating who God is. When God calls you to serve, go where he does, or he recalls like immediately. Yeah, answer God's call, right? When God calls, the answer is yes. Not a lot of us and our prejudices and fears, it's about God. Okay, good. Loving the, the unlovable, good, very good. The extent of God's grace. God's will will be done. Maybe one or two more if you have them. If we repent, God relents. Okay? So there's an application to repent, right? And then any final thought? Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Compassion. Okay, so overcome, overcoming our fears. Good. All of this is good. After eight sermons and four chapters, to me, if I could take all of these things, which are all true and helpful and on the money, to me, there seems to be two main points. Two main points of application. And I would even say that each of these things we've shared this morning fall under one of these two main points. But the two main points are these. Arise and go. And it's these two things I want to consider with you this morning as we conclude this study. And my guiding thought is this. Complacent as we may have been, the Great Commission remains our charge as we bring God's compassion to a world in need. 
Today is a review of the book. We're not going to be in a particular passage, but rather kind of look back over the four chapters in their entirety. But I've selected three separate texts that I believe capture the heart of the book of Jonah, and I want to read them together with you. They're found in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. The book begins this way in chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And then chapter 3, after Jonah's belly in the fish encounter, we're told that then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And then finally, chapter 4, verse 11, the final and concluding verse in the story of Jonah, God tells us why. For should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? I, 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 just, I just love that little final clause, and also much cattle. It's that, this idea that be, I mean, because all creation is affected by the fall and longs for its redemption, even, even animals find safety in the heart of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our study in the book of Jonah thus far. We thank you that you've uh, provided for us an opportunity even this morning to consider its meaning yet again. Thank you for the things we've learned in these few chapters concerning you and who you are. How you are gracious and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and you relent from your just wrath toward sin when the sinner repents. Thank you for the things we've learned about ourselves. They've been hard truths at times. How we see ourselves in Jonah painfully so, how, um, how we're not as responsive or obedient as you'd want us to be, or even at times as we want to be, how things hold us back, how prejudices and preferences keep us, uh, keep us boxed and contained within our own human finite limits and limitations. 
Thank you that like Jonah, we can sometimes talk a big game, but our walk is often lacking. Thank you for the things that we've learned in this book about the world, our surrounding world, um, a world of people who are lost and broken. They're grasping for answers like the sailors of chapter 1, or they're just outright defiant and wicked like the Ninevites in chapter 3, and yet you are... Uh, you seek to reach and minister to them all and, and save many. And so I would just pray that as we spend one more week in this book this morning, will you please continue to impress these things upon us that, we would, uh, that the truths we've learned and are learning even today would take root in our lives and that we would be a changed people for your name's sake. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, contrary to what some may assume, the greatest danger facing Christianity today is not ISIS or threats of nuclear war or political agendas or aberrant worldviews or intensifying persecution. No, no, no. no. The, the greatest danger facing Christianity today is complacency. Complacency. As one Christian leader indicts, the unorganized indifference within the ranks of church members is far more destructive to the work of the Lord than all the organized forces of iniquity assailing from the outside. Ouch. To Jonah, God said, Arise. First in chapter 1 and again in chapter 3, it means to stand, to get up to get to your feet and ready yourself. And the command to arise applies as much to us today as it did to Jonah then. As it has been from the beginning, now is the time for the church to stand and be counted for Jesus Christ. Can I get a witness? To rise above, please hear this, to rise above the peripheral and petty squabbles that, too, that are too often rooted in our own personal preferences and to engage, instead engage people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must do this because, even as C.S. Lewis asserted in his Screwtape Letters, a moderated religion, that is, an indifferent or mediocre religion, is as good as no religion at all. Complacency is not a quality that God admires, obviously. But to fight it, we must first admit it. 
and then identify the areas in which it's present. So what are, the, what are some of the characteristics of complacency that mark our lives and churches? I want to I share, as I thought through that question, I want to share five thoughts that I came up with that I call characteristics of the complacent. And the first is this. I want to ask you, which of these five hit home for you? The first is that we are far too easily satisfied. People and therefore churches sometimes live under the illusion that we've already arrived. Even when we uh, recognize room for growth in specific areas, we rarely strive to attain it. The Cambridge Dictionary defines complacency as a feeling of calm satisfaction with your own abilities or situation that prevents you from trying harder. Or said another way, we are simply too satisfied. Over the past year or so, as you know, we here at East Parkway have been talking about cultivating a community for the cause of Christ. Now, the word community in that statement is important. No one would deny that. The words cause of Christ are obviously important. No one denies that. But I want to I want you to realize that the word cultivating is just as important because it implies more that we're still in process, we're still working, we're still participating together to achieve something much larger than our individual selves, which I believe, when applied, helps counteract the tendency towards short-sighted satisfaction. A second characteristic of complacency is that we leave the work for someone else. And by the way, just know that I'm speaking in generalities right now. I'm not talking about any one individual or even our specific church. I'm just, these are general characteristics as I see them, even as I identify them in my own life. We leave the work for someone else. How many of you are familiar with the term drafting in racing terms? Drafting. Drafting is common in sports like uh, auto racing and cycling. It occurs, for example, when a cyclist tucks herself in behind another, often, if you've seen pictures, often literally like just an inch away from the lead rider's rear tire. And she does this to avoid as much of the air resistance as possible, right? The driver or the rider in front is having to muscle through all the resistance on his own while the rear rider benefits from having this vacuum that essentially forms around them. Drafting can, can benefit both riders. You've probably seen this. Drafting can benefit both riders as long as they swap positions with regularity thereby serving each other by taking the lead when it's their turn. You get that? Well, the same can be true in the church as long as church members each look to serve the whole. But when we leave the work of ministry to everyone else, to strain through and muscle through the air resistance on their own, we, we not only uh, deprive them of the necessary breather, 
We also deprive ourselves of the joy that comes with using our God-given gifts and abilities. Drafting is a great strategy for cyclists, but a lousy one for Christian living. A third characteristic of the complacent is that they become unteachable, unyielding, immovable, and not in a good way. The irony is they may attend Bible studies and life groups and prayer meetings with regularity, but the person who is unteachable seems to always be resisting the opportunity to rethink current views or approaches to ministry. Convinced that he already has all the answers and needs no others, the unteachable person becomes complacent even within his own fiercely held opinions. And I want to contrast this with a story I heard about Ray Stedman. Many of you know Ray, or at least heard of him. Ray Stedman uh, once pastored Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto. Beginning in 1950, he served that congregation there for 40 years, 40 years of faithful ministry that brought national and international acclaim. But I think what's perhaps most commendable is not the sermons he preached, or the books he wrote, or the literally dozens of disciple-makers he himself discipled. I think most commendable was that Ray was a lifelong learner. Even when pushing 70 years old, he enrolled and audited classes at Regent College in Vancouver. Though he had long since graduated from seminary decades prior. A tremendous Bible scholar and theologian in his own right, Ray knew that there was more to know and thus never stopped growing and learning from other people. And I'm simply saying that I want that kind of teachability to mark my life. Young, middle-aged, older age. I want to be marked by that kind of teachability. Often paired with an unteachable spirit is a desperate clinging to the past. That's number four. We live in the past. Whenever we try to recapture the supposed glory of yesterday's church, we are essentially refusing to be the church of today. Though the message of the gospel is unchanging, the means and methods of communicating that message change all the time because the times themselves are always changing. Believers do well to remember how the Apostle Paul frequently contextualized his ministry, becoming all things to all people, always adapting to time and place and culture as necessary. And when he spoke of forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead in Philippians 3, he wasn't referring only to leaving sin and failure by the wayside, but also past achievement and accolade. We've got to let that go too. 
And then finally, a fifth characteristic of the complacent is a general lack of interest for our neighbors and our neighboring communities. This was Jonah's biggest hurdle. Jonah lacked concern for Nineveh. The people of Nineveh weren't to be included among the people of God, in Jonah's opinion. They weren't part of the nation of Israel. They didn't know the Lord as Israel did. They didn't know the Lord at all, in fact, which created barriers in Jonah's heart that he never overcame, at least not within the timeline of this book. Perhaps more than anything, the book of Jonah is an indictment of the religious community. Jonah is Israel of his day. Jonah is the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Jonah is the church of our day. And when the church becomes consumed with self-interest rather than interest for its community, when it becomes ingrown rather than outwardly directed, it loses its divine saltiness. You are the salt of the earth. And it snuffs its own light. You are the light of the world. And when that happens, we have essentially swapped Christian compassion with complacency, strangely content within the confines of our own bubble-wrapped existence. Too easily satisfied. Leaving the work for others. Being unteachable. Living in the past and lacking interest for the unbelieving world around us. These are just a few characteristics of complacency, which hit home for you. Just think about that silently. And then know that the goal is not to be uncomplacent, it's not to avoid negative qualities as much as it is the pursuit of positive ones. The goal, then, is to be invested in the purposes of God. The cure, hear this, the cure for complacency is reorientation around God's mission in the world. We must arise, therefore, and go. Are you with me this morning? When Jesus taught us to pray, he said to desire that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But how is that to occur if we don't take that prayer and apply it to our own lives? How how does that happen? How does God's will be done on earth if God's people aren't about God's purposes? To pray for God's will is to participate in God's work.
Otherwise, aren't we just kind of praying through the motions? Our lips are moving, but our hearts remain unmoved. Remember Jonah at the beginning of chapter 3? He spends chapter 2 in prayer, and it ends with him being spewed out of the belly of the fish. Now, who knows how much time lapsed between chapters 2 and 3, but however long it was, one chapter ends, literally, with Jonah lying in fish vomit. Well, the next begins with God getting Jonah back on track, back on mission, or back in the game. Don't miss the significance of that. Have you ever felt like you've failed when it comes to great commission endeavors? Come on, anyone. Have you ever felt like you have failed when it comes to great commission endeavors? A few of us have. When that happens, because we feel like a failure, and I'm speaking personally, because we feel like a failure, we tend to remove ourselves from the mission entirely. The evil one, doesn't he? He comes to us in those moments and says something like, See, you're not cut out for this. You're not gifted in this way. You don't have what it takes. You're finished. But with God, we're not finished. With God, we can be restored and made ready again. Some of us, like Jonah, have beached ourselves. We're not in the bottom of the ocean anymore, thankfully. We're not in the belly of the fish, and that's good news. But we're still not yet doing what God has purposed. Like Jonah, at the end of chapter 2, we're still reeling from past failure. We're still sitting in the vomit of our own reluctance. Essentially, we're sitting at a commission crossroads. I think that's where Jonah was in that span of time between chapters 2 and 3. Commission crossroads. Will we do what God has said, even though we've come up short in the past, even though we've failed, even though I've fumbled the ball, and the enemy is just whispering lies, one after the other? Will we do what God has said, even though all of that is taking place, or will we continue to excuse ourselves from what God is doing and wants us to do in the world? A commission crossroads. I recently read an article titled, What Churches Should Look For in a Missionary. The article asserts that we should be very thoughtful, this is good advice, very thoughtful and careful about who we send as missionaries. When considering a a prospective missionary, the author suggests we should assess at least three things. Character, fruitfulness, and knowledge of the Bible. Regarding character, he says, quote, We need to send people who are self-starters, yet faithful and willing to submit to authority. 
Regarding fruitfulness, he says that a trail of conspicuous fruit is one of the grand marks of a good prospective missionary. And regarding Bible knowledge, he says, to send people who stand out in the knowledge and understanding of the Bible. Now, it was a good article, and I generally agree with his main points. But if this is the standard by which missionaries are sent, then doesn't that make Jonah the worst missionary ever? Jonah doesn't check any of these three boxes. Not a one. He wasn't a faithful self-starter who submitted to authority, not even God's. There wasn't a trail of conspicuous fruit that marked his life. And he actually used his knowledge of Scripture to fault God rather than teach others about God. Can you think of a worse candidate than Jonah? I mean, which missions board would reasonably recommend Jonah putting Jonah out on the mission field. And yet, despite how utterly disqualified he was, God sent him anyway. And in this, there is so much encouragement for us. This is where Jonah's story intersects with our own Jonah offers hope to all missionaries everywhere, including us, because listen, as incapable and unqualified and imperfect, as many times as you failed in the past, as incapable, as unqualified and imperfect as you are, I guarantee you're not worse than Jonah. Let me offer... Let me offer some suggestions on how to get going. Arise and go. Go. Let me offer some suggestions on how to get going. Four things to know and apply. First, I think becoming an effective witness means believing now listen I mean believing truly believing that salvation belongs to the Lord that's one thing Jonah got right in chapter 2 verse 9 Too often we carry the burden of needing to change a person's mind and heart, a burden that's not ours to carry. It's not ours to carry. Jonah preached an eight-word sermon. His heart wasn't even in it, and yet revival swept through Nineveh because the Spirit of God was reviving their hearts. John 3 says, Unless one is born of the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 12 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 
Ephesians 2.8 says that salvation is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And to all who receive this gift in and through Christ, we're told in John 1, who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God who are born, hear this, they're not born of the will of the flesh. They're not born of blood. They're not born of the will of man. They are born of God. You can give the finest gospel presentation known to man. I mean, you can just nail it every point. Perfect timing, perfect eloquence, perfect scripture at just the right spot. It could be the most beautiful presentation of the gospel ever. But if God is not extending his grace toward that individual, your presentation matters not. On the other hand, you can stumble your way through a sloppy presentation. I mean, you're fumbling over your words. You're at- Has this ever happened to you? You're attaching wrong scripture references to right verses. And yet in those moments, God could be taking your words and using them to call that individual to himself. People are not born again through our power of persuasion, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, it's not about persuading a skeptic or convincing a bad person to be good. It's about caring for people who are dead in their sins and need to be resurrected to new life, and only God can do that. Only God can do that. So in a sense, relax. The pressure's off. Salvation belongs to whom? To the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Second, know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3 describes the Word as the breath of God that gives life in every way. 1 Peter 1 depicts the word as imperishable seed that when planted in our hearts bears eternal fruit. The the prophet Isaiah pictured God's word like rain and snow from heaven that waters the earth and accomplishes all that God intends. God's God's word is not a mere compilation of random bits of information. It is the power of heaven itself pouring forth into our lives with divine grace and glory. Years ago, many years ago now, when I was in sales, still is weird for me to even say that. I went to meet one of my customers. And immediately, you've had these encounters, immediately you just know something's not right. And I knew he wasn't right. And he began to tell me how he had just learned just that weekend 
that his wife had been unfaithful and she was leaving him. And I was 21 years old at the time, not even married yet. So what counsel could I possibly offer this man whose world was falling apart? And as I sat and listened, all I could think to say was that God is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's all I could think to say. On another occasion, many years later, I was in my front yard with my neighbor. And he was not a good neighbor. In fact, he actively participated in illegal activity. He would drive Sally and I crazy. And I had numerous conversations with him about his behavior, which always fell on deaf ears. Always. But in this particular moment, on my front lawn, he opened up. And he began sharing how empty he was, how devoid of meaning his life was, and how he wished life had turned out differently for him. And I shared with him all I could think to share with him was how God extends forgiveness to those who trust him, how when a person comes to Christ, they are a new creation. And how new, new life is not just a possibility, but a reality for the person who follows Jesus. And in both instances, with my customer at his shop and with my neighbor on my lawn, I felt totally unprepared and unable to relate with their respective situations. All I could do was share God's word as it came to me. The first man whose wife was leaving him, when he heard the word, entrusted his life to God. And remember, all I said was, God is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And when he heard that word, he entrusted his life to God. He literally broke down right then and there, and we prayed. I began discipling him. He came to church with me, and steadily he grew in the Lord. This, the second man, my neighbor, he didn't. When he heard the word, he refused and continued down his downward spiral, suffering loss after loss until eventually he lost everything. And the point is that our role, our role is to get God's word into people's lives because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So pass out Bibles, memorize verses, share scriptures with people who need to hear them. Whatever the case, just share the word of God. Get it out there into people's lives and leave the results to him. Number two, or number three. A third way to get going is to understand that the human element is essential. This is critical. This is going to seem so elementary. But it's so important for us to understand this. Why did God send Jonah to Nineveh, especially given Jonah's reluctance? Why not reach Nineveh by another means? I mean, he who appointed a storm and a fish 
and a plant and a worm and even an east wind, could he not also have appointed another way of reaching Nineveh? And the answer is, of course he could have. But God has created us for relationship and the human connection is therefore important. We hear stories of people coming to Christ through visions and dreams, which is true, and the accounts are amazing, but, but understand, that's the exception, not the rule. God can reach people through other means, obviously, and He does sometimes. But if we trace the history and the worldwide expansion of the church, we'll see that God's primary method is human-to-human Contact. In Acts, for example, though God is performing miracles left and right, the only occasions by which a person comes to saving faith is through human interaction. And you'll say to me, for those of you who know Acts, you'll say, well, what about Saul? Who became Paul? What about how the fact that Jesus just appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And I'll say to you, yes, but what did Jesus do next? He then sent him to go to Ananias for further instruction. Human to human contact. Even Christ came to us in human form. The people in your life are not there by accident. Could it be that God has you in their lives as a means of bringing them to repentance and faith? Sometimes we assume that God is just magically bringing people to faith and just suddenly they're popping up in church. But what if we are the means God intends to use? What if you are? I don't want to embarrass him. I don't want to embarrass them. So I ask permission to do this. But I just want to say and now publicly acknowledge how I am so inspired by Jeremy Gauthier and the team of folks from Christlike Services. I'm serious. I'm serious. I mean, look at this. In a matter of, I don't know how long it's been, not long, it's almost a whole section. And the connection is Jeremy. One person who invested in another and said, come to church with me. And all these months later, 20 people are sitting here who weren't here six months ago. They come for Bible study before the service. They're here at 9 o'clock. Actually, I see them pull up at about 8.45. Obviously, they stay for worship during the service. They come again on Tuesday evenings for the life group that meets here. Imagine if more of us 
we're invested in bringing more people. Imagine the effect as more and more lives were simply touching more and more lives. And then finally, to understand that salvation belongs to the Lord, that faith comes through hearing, that the human element is critical, is to pray like it makes a difference. Pray for the people in your life. Pray for their joys and struggles, for their needs, material and spiritual. Pray for them and with them. Pray for change in a positive direction and for change in your own heart. Pray for opportunity to talk about Jesus and courage to seize it when it comes. Just two days ago, I was asked if God were to answer every prayer you prayed last week, would anyone new be in the kingdom? I mean, in one fell swoop, if God just said yes to all your prayers last week, would we welcome anyone new into the family of God? Pray like it really matters. Pray boldly and don't give up. Remember Moses who said he wouldn't go unless God went with him. Remember the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage who elbowed her way through the crowd just to touch the hem of Christ's robe. Or the parable of the widow uh, appearing before the judge, how she persisted in her pursuit of what's just and right. Prayer, you see, is not about informing God or convincing God or trying to overcome any reluctance on God's part. Prayer is about aligning with God's heart and laying hold of His character. God's heart is one of compassion. God loves to save. God loves to redeem. God loves to rescue from the brokenness and separation that sin brings. So, dear East Parkway, arise. And go. Go first to God in repentance and faith. And then go out with God into the world. For as complacent I just love God's timing of things. I just love God's timing of things. That is, trust me, you're not the only one. <laughs> that is, that is. People as complacent as we may have been in times past, as complacent as you may have been in times past, there's no getting around the fact that the Great Commission remains our charge. So let us take God's compassion to a world in need. Amen? Amen. God, we thank you for this time. Thank you for every person here. We lay ourselves before you. God, some of these words sting a bit. And so we ask that you would that, that the, we would just pray that the sting is 
is a godly, sanctifying thing. And that you use this spirit birth conviction to usher in change. Make us people who stand, who arise, who are willing to be counted for Christ. And make us people who go. For the glory of your name, for the praise of your name, and God, for the good of countless thousands that live literally all around us. Do this, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.